Good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16? Now, as we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, we find ourselves in chapter 16, coming to the end of Jesus' farewell address to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. We're less than, probably less than 10 hours by this time from Jesus' crucifixion. Earlier in the evening in the upper room, he dropped a bombshell by telling them he was going away and they couldn't go with him. They had followed him everywhere for three and a half years, but now he says he's going somewhere and they can't go with him. And even though the work he had begun, they would have to continue in his absence, well, he told them he wasn't going to leave them alone and helpless like orphaned children. The Lord promised he would send them another helper who would come alongside of them, the Holy Spirit, who would abide with them forever. Chapter 14, verses 15 through 18. Well, as we come to chapter 16, that thought is still on his mind. And so in verse 5, it says, he said, But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, guys, based on this section of John's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 5 to 15, we began a series we've entitled The Ministry of the Holy Spirit, a series we'll finish this morning. But this series has two main points. Very simply, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the unbeliever, the world, and then the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer in Christ. Now, we've already looked at the first main point, and uh, a couple weeks ago we started looking at the second main point, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer. That covers verses 12 through 15. Let's just read the first two verses, uh, chapter, uh, verse 12, where Jesus said, I, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Now, from those two verses, we said that, as we are looking at now the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer, first of all, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will expound and expand on what I've already taught you. So that first point we have, the Holy Spirit will expound and expand the teachings of Jesus, verses 12 and 13. Uh, he says in those two verses, he will guide you into all truth, as we've already seen. That means he will finish giving you the, the complete canon of the New Testament scriptures. Uh, obviously, Jesus couldn't give all of that to his disciples when he was with them. He ran out of time, basically, and so he said, the Holy Spirit will come back and he will guide you into the rest of the truth that you need, I'll paraphrase, to build my church upon, right? So he'll guide you into all truth. Number two, he will speak on, excuse me, he will not speak on his own authority. 
Again, he would only expand and expound on what Jesus taught them. We've already covered that as well. This third one, we started last week. We will pick it up this morning and finish the section. He will tell you things to come. So, number one, he will guide you into all truth. Number two, he will not speak on his own authority. And number three, he will tell you things to come. Or in other words, he would reveal prophecy to them. As we said last time, why is prophecy so important and I believe so vital in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer in Christ? Well, as we said last week, it's important for two main reasons. Vigilance and validation. Vigilance and validation. Let me review just quickly from last week because we looked at this first one. Vigilance. As we said last time, the dictionary defines vigilance basically as to be on guard against or to be on the lookout for. Now, with regard to Bible prophecy, the vigilance that I have in mind when I say this is vigilantly watching for the return of Jesus Christ. Being vigilant, guys, in watching for Jesus' return wouldn't be possible if he, if Jesus, and of course the Holy Spirit, hadn't given us signs to be watching for. In other words, we couldn't watch for the Lord's return, you know, if God hadn't told us in his word what was coming in the future. Events to be on the lookout for that would indicate the Lord's return was getting near. Again, we call it prophecy. And last week we said one of the gigantic ones that the church was looking for for many centuries was the rebirth of the nation of Israel. That happened on May 14, 1948. We talked about that last week. Go online, you can listen to the study. But that was like, wow, that was like an atom bomb in the, in, in the Christian community indicating, whoa, church has been waiting for this for 2,000 years. In fact, uh, many Christians wrote it off as allegorical. Can't be real. No nation has ever been out of their land for 2,000 years to be regathered and become a nation again. And as God prophesied at that time would speak, Pure Hebrew, which had been a dead language for almost 2,000 years. That happened last century, <laughs> not that long ago, uh, May 14, 1948. But guys, this is what makes prophecy so important to us as Christians. We couldn't be vigilant without it. We couldn't be vigilant without it. Now, as Christians, the return of Jesus we are looking for is Jesus' return for his church where he snatches us off the earth in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, to meet him in the clouds before taking us to heaven to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We call this return the rapture. Remember, now there are two returns of Jesus. The rapture, where he comes for his church, and the second coming, where he comes with his church. So a lot of Christians say, well, no, there's only one coming. Well, that's not true. At the rapture, he comes for his church, doesn't even come to the earth, we kind of get zipped up and meet him halfway. At his second coming, Revelation 19, he comes with his church all the way to the earth to establish his kingdom. They are definitely not the same event, okay? But as Christians, we are looking for his return for his church called the rapture. And you can study that, 2 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 17. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. If you're new 
you'll want to read those scriptures. All right, the rapture. Guys, the problem with looking for the rapture, got to be on guard, looking out for the rapture. The problem with looking for the rapture is that it is imminent. It's imminent, which means it could happen at any moment. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 40, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So how can we be vigilant in looking for Jesus coming for his church at the rapture if it's imminent, which means there are no signs. There are no signs for us to be on the lookout for indicating the rapture is getting close. How can we be vigilant, right? Let me put it this way. Have you been to the stores lately? I know you have. If so, you've noticed that the Christmas decorations are already on display, right? I know. Maybe you don't. I know. That Thanksgiving comes before Christmas. So if the signs of Christmas are everywhere, it means that Thanksgiving is getting very close indeed. God didn't give us any signs to be looking for that indicate the rapture was getting close. Again, it's imminent. But he did give us over 500 prophecies in the Bible to be on the lookout for that indicate Jesus' second coming is getting near. Now, we know the rapture comes before the second coming. So if the signs of Jesus' second coming are everywhere, and folks, they definitely are. We know the rapture is getting very close indeed. So, first of all, prophecy is vital when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer because it allows us to remain vigilant, watchful, watching for the Lord's coming for his church, something that Jesus stressed more and more, especially as he got closer and closer to the end of his earthly ministry, closer and closer to the cross. He kept stressing this. You can see it in all the Gospels. In fact, I'll have you turn to Matthew 24, give you one example. The closer Jesus got to the cross, the closer he got to the time when he would be going back to his father, the one thing he kept stressing over and over again was the importance of his church being vigilant, watchful. In Matthew 24, Starting with verse 45, and I'll read it to you out of the NLT 2nd edition. He said, A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, huh, my master won't be back for a while, and begins beating the other servants, partying, getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut that servant in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we must be vigilant. We must. It's very important that we are on the lookout not just waiting for his return, as we said last week, but watching for his return. All right? But secondly, 
Prophecy is vital to the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer in Jesus for another reason. That's validation. Okay, validation. Now, the dictionary defines validate as, and I'm quoting, to put a mark on something, to show that it has been checked and is official and accepted, as when a customs officer validates a passport to show that something is real or correct, end quote. Guys, in the Old Testament, and I'm paraphrasing, we'll actually look at the scriptures in a second, but let me just say up front, in the Old Testament, God said, I'm telling you things, listen, before they happen, so that when they do happen, you will know, and of course believe, that I am God, and this, my Bible, is my word. As Christians, Think about this. How can we be dynamic in our lives and ministries for the Lord without the assurance that the Bible is truly the Word of God? And this is why Satan is attacking the Scriptures. It has from the very beginning. Did God really say? God said something to even the Garden of Eden? Right away, Satan attacked it. Because the devil knows if he's going to get us to fall into sin, uh, not to measure up to... The, the calling God has for us to be more than conquerors and so on. He has got to attack the Word of God. I think his, his two-pronged strategy is simple. Number one, keep them off their knees. Keep them off their knees. Prayer is powerful. That's his number one strategy. It tells his demons, keep them off their Get them tired. Tell them they've got time. They'll pray later in the day. It never happens. And after you get them off their knees, you get them out of the Word. Or you discredit the word, but they no longer have confidence in it. As Christians, there's no way we can live dynamic lives and have dynamic ministries for the Lord without the assurance that the Bible is truly his word. This is another reason why prophecy is so important in the life of the believer in Christ. It validates that the Bible is truly his word. Let me stop and say it again. Prophecy, guys, is the single greatest proof. And I don't say that lightly, but I do say it definitely that the bible excuse me prophecy is the single greatest proof that the bible that you have in your lap this morning is in fact the word of the living god that is really the main purpose of prophecy in the bible i mean it serves other purposes we just talked about one but this is really the main purpose of prophecy in the bible it is the strongest apologetic that we have that the bible is inspired by God. How do we know it's inspired by God through prophecy? Because it is proof, the prophecy is, that the God of the Bible is the transcendent God who dwells outside of time and space, outside of our physical universe, in the eternal spiritual realm. And to prove this truth about himself, that he is outside of time, and that his word is an integrated message, an integrated message system that has come to us from outside our time domain. My favorite, one of my all-time favorite Bible teachers, Chuck Missler, used to like to say, to prove that, God has filled his word with prophecy, telling us the end from the beginning. 27% of the Bible, roughly, is prophecy. And there was a reason God did that. Look, God is outside of time. He knows what's coming in the future and has revealed it in the pages of Scripture to prove that he is God and that the Bible is his word. Let me read to you three 
passages on this subject. All three I'll read to you from the NLT second edition. Uh, that that go speak to this what we're talking about. God is a, God is appealing to a prophecy, to, uh, talking about how that He knows the end from the beginning. He's not guessing when He gives uh, you know prophecies about coming future events. He knows what's coming, right? And so He says this proves to you that I am God, I am God. But Isaiah forty two verses eight and nine, I am the Lord. That is my name. Verse nine. Everything I prophesied has come true. And now I will prophesy again and tell you the future before it happens. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it ever happens. Only me. Isaiah 41, verse 23. Let them, context is lifeless idols, let them tell us what will occur in the days ahead, then we will know that they are truly gods, implying that the only one who knows the future is the God of the Bible. He alone is the true God. And of course, you can read Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5, where God says, if a prophet comes to you claiming to speak on my behalf and says to you anything, one thing, that doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet, write them off. I'm not guessing, God said. I know the future. How does God know the future? Because he is outside of time. We've used the illustration before. Let me use it again. I think it came from Hal Lindsey. I picked this up years ago. I think it was Lindsey who said, look, we look at time. We're in time. All right? God's outside of time. But we are locked in this physical dimension. Height, depth, width, time. Four-dimensional physical universe, right? We see events coming past us one event at a time. Uh, kind of like you would watch a parade from ground level. You're sitting there, and you're watching the parade, and you see, you know, basically you can look down a little bit and look ahead, but basically you're seeing what's coming right before you, right? Now, imagine you're looking at that same parade from a helicopter, maybe a couple thousand feet in the air. As you look down, you see the beginning, the middle, and the end of the parade all happening at the same time. You know what's coming. I can't see ground level what's coming maybe five blocks down the road. Well, you can see it because you're outside of that limited frame of reference. God is saying, look, I see the end from the beginning. I see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I see Jesus reigning on his throne. I mean, in the millennial kingdom, I see everything as if it's happening right now. That's what we say that God is the great I am, not the great I was or the great I will be. He's the great I am. For God, everything is happening in the eternal present tense, and so on. But guys, prophecy is God's seal of authenticity upon the scriptures that the words of the Bible are, in fact, from him. Again, the only one who knows the end from the beginning. But prophecy is not only designed to validate his word. That's one of the main things. It's also designed to build faith in Jesus. What do I mean? Well, remember earlier in the evening, Jesus said to these very disciples back in John 14, verse 29. He said, and now I have told you before it comes. He's talking, he's, he's prophesying. I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. You may believe. And of course, if you study the context, 
in that passage, the Lord Jesus was prophesying of his coming death, resurrection, and eventual ascension back to his Father in heaven. And in that regard, Jesus was using prophecy in that context in an informational way. Informational way. But notice further how the Lord connects fulfilled prophecy with the strengthening of their or anyone's faith. And so in that regard, prophecy has a devotional element. What do I mean? Well, it builds a person's faith in Jesus, who is the Word, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, okay? It's hard to talk about Jesus apart from the Word of God. He is the Word of God, right? In the beginning was the Word, and so on, right? Um, but yes, prophecy uh, tells us things to come prepares us for what's coming all right but the idea is that god is communicating is look only the true and living god knows what's coming if i tell you things to come and they finally do come to pass that should build your faith in my son and in my word that you know that the word came from me but my son being the word also came to the earth from me now guys listen and I want to spend a lot of time on this because you know all, pretty much know this. But let me just, as we're talking about this, let me just do this quickly. There are many prophecies in the Bible. Many. But let's focus for a minute on those that have to do with Jesus Christ and his first coming. Those are the ones that would affect uh, that night. He was with them. He was still operating under his first coming. Okay? So let's just for a minute... Um, Look at those prophecies that only deal with Jesus' first coming. Remember, Revelation 19, verse 10 says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So when you think about it, really, prophecy primarily is all about Christ. All about Christ, in, 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 in some sense, okay? So let me run through some of these. I mean, we could spend weeks, but we're not, not going to. I know you're thankful for that. But let me just, just hit a few of these, okay? Uh, with regard to Jesus' first coming. Isaiah 53 tells us that he would lead a hard life, that he would be a man acquainted with grief and suffering. Well, that's important because Messiah was going to be a king, right? A king doesn't is not acquainted with grief and suffering. A king comes in luxury and opulence and so on. The fact that Messiah was going to be a person acquainted with grief and suffering made him unique among all the kings that you would understand that, right? If you're just looking for a king, you're looking for, you know, opulence, splendor, and so on. No, no, this king was going to be uh, lowly. Um, somebody acquainted with grief and suffering. Psalm 41, verse 9 says that someone close to him, close to Messiah, a dear, a dear and trusted friend would betray him. Well, that happens a lot. But when you add up all these things together, it paints a pretty clear picture of who this Messiah, this coming king, is going to be, and how it, we know it points to Jesus. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 11 through 13, tells us that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and that his betrayer would throw the money down uh, in the temple, and that it would be used then to buy a potter's field to bury the poor in. Isaiah 50 and chapter 52 foretell of the savage beating he would receive at the hands of his captors, including the vicious scourging he would endure 
and how they would rip his beard from his face. We don't even get that really in the New Testament. How gruesome a beating our Lord endured, right? Psalm 22 describes more vividly and graphically than even the New Testament the way he would die. Crucifixion. Read, the, read Psalm 22, which was prophesied, listen, 500 years before crucifixion was even invented and roughly 900 years before the Romans began to use it as a form of execution. It was invented by the Persians. Now, Rome took it to, you know, they perfected it, you might say. Uh, but um, Psalm 22 was given 900 years before the Romans even started using crucifixion uh, to kill uh, prisoners, convicts. Now, I'll just give you one more, Psalm 16. There's other passages, of course, that speak of his resurrection from the dead. Read Psalm 16, very clear. Um, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption and so on, how that uh, God was going to promise the, the son he would raise him from the dead before his body started to decay. Uh, the Jews believed decay started on the fourth day. Jesus was raised on the third day, okay? And guys, there are many other prophecies that throughout the Bible they give detailed aspects of the life and ministry of Messiah, uh, over 300 in all that deal with just his first coming alone. And you can go do your own study on these uh, 300 prophecies and how they relate to Christ. It's amazing. And obviously Jesus is in, is in view. He's the focus. But let me stop here and say this. Um, when we talk about Jesus fulfilling messianic prophecy, prophecy there are skeptics who believe that Jesus simply, you know, read the prophecies in the scriptures about the Messiah and then went about trying to fulfill them so he could claim to be the Messiah. Okay. Well, he could certainly do that with some uh, of the messianic prophecies, but with most of them, that would be very difficult. Uh, like getting Judas to betray you for exactly 30 pieces of silver. Or to have the Romans, instead of tearing up his, his cloak, his outer garment, um, they, they thought it was valuable because it was not a seamed garment. It was woven as, as a one-piece uh, thing. They cast lots for it, which, again, is prophesied in the Old Testament, right? But with others, let's be honest, it would be absolutely impossible for Jesus to read a prophecy about Messiah and then fulfill it. What do I mean? How about the resurrection? Oh, okay. Messiah's going to be resurrected. Oh, I can do that. No, I don't think so. Um, but let me just say this to you along those lines, right? Um, Jesus fulfilled three prophecies by just being born. He didn't do anything. We read the Messianic prophecies and ran around fulfilling them. Well, there was three that happened that he fulfilled without by just being born, right? Quickly. Second Samuel 7 tells us that Messiah would be a descendant of King David. Now, as we, the old saying goes, you know, you can pick your friends, you're stuck with your family. You don't get to pick what family you're born into. Messiah was going to be born into, prophesied into the family of David, which Jesus was, right? Number two, Micah 5, 2 tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem. Listen, it even tells us what county, Ephrathah. And the Holy Spirit made sure to include the county because there was another Bethlehem up in the Galilee. And God's very specific, especially when it comes to his son. Tells us, you know, 
not only what family he'd be born into, but where he would be born. Bethlehem in the county of Ephrathah. And then finally, it's prophesied what time in human history he would be born. Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27 tells us that Messiah would be born, listen, sometime before the destruction of the temple, which took place in 70 A.D. Now, guys, that eliminates every other time in history, the history of the world, for the Messiah's birth. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' first coming, as we have said, and 500 concerning his second coming, and guess what? An overwhelming number of these have already come to pass. Let me stop and say this. If all the prophecies of Jesus' first coming and many concerning his second coming have come to pass, have been fulfilled with flawless accuracy, you need to ask yourself, if you're a skeptic here this morning, do you think, do you really believe that the remainder of the messianic prophecies concerning Jesus' second coming also won't come to pass with that same flawless accuracy. And if you doubt that, you're really betting your eternity on that. We would all do well to heed carefully the admonition of the Apostle Peter concerning the soon return of Jesus to establish his kingdom and judge those living in rebellion against his authority over their lives. I'll just read these to you. You can write down the reference. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 5. Listen to what Peter said now. The, the context is um, Jesus' second coming, okay, which was prophesied in Scripture many places. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also, with the same mind, verse 2, that we no longer should live the rest of our lives in the flesh for the lust of men, lusts of men, for the but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, unbelievers. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. Who are you talking to? Your old friends. You know, the guys, the gals that you used to party with, that you ran with the crowd. You talk about running with the crowd, right? Well, Peter picks up on that, right? That you do not run. They think it's strange. What happened to you? That you're not running with the crowd anymore. You're not partying with us, getting drunk, sleeping around, whatever they did, the, the crowd, right? Uh, you know, they think it's strange. Oh, man, he got he became a Bible thumper. Man, he's, he's lost his mind. He doesn't party anymore. He doesn't drink. You know, he, he's lost it. No, he's found it. He's found Jesus. And everything has changed. Old things have passed away. All things have become new, Right? Listen, all the, the, all the crowd that we used to run with, that we don't run with anymore because we're saved now. We run with a different crowd. It's called the body of Christ, the family of God, right? But Peter goes on to say in verse 5, they will give an account to him 
who is ready to judge the living and the dead. A prophetic warning of Jesus' second coming. And what happens when Jesus comes the second time before he establishes his kingdom? Well, he brings some judgment at that point. At the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom, you can read Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. He will bring one final ultimate judgment upon all unbelievers before they're cast into hell. Lake of fire. But 2 Peter 1.19, Peter said, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns, Christ's return, and the morning star rises in your heart. He said, you would do well to heed the prophecies of God, because God is not guessing. And so many have already come to pass. Don't think for a second those that are yet future will also not come to pass with the same flawless accuracy as all the others up until this point have come to pass. And so once more, when it comes to the prophecies in God's word, a person would do well to heed what God has said about Jesus' second coming and adjust their lives accordingly. In other words, get saved and start living for the Lord. All right. So Jesus said of the ministries, excuse me, the Spirit's ministry to the believer in verses 12 and 13 that he will expound, the Holy Spirit will expound and expand for us, the church, the teachings of Jesus. And we'll finish with this, verses 14 and 15. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the life of the believer. He will glorify Jesus. Verse 14 Jesus said, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. We've already really covered this in uh, prior studies in this series. Um, but let me just say it again quickly. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. He always and only draws attention to Jesus. That is his ministry, to the believer especially. Now this principle, as we said, is violated all the time um, in charismatic churches who make the Holy Spirit the center of attention. And, you know, Jesus seems to be relegated to a place of secondary importance. As he has cast more in a supporting role to the Spirit instead of the main focus in their churches, which he should be, and the Spirit of God wants to make him. The Spirit of God never wants to draw attention to himself. In some churches, it's all about the Spirit. And Jesus gets kind of pushed into the corner. Oh, yeah, he's there. Yeah, there's Jesus. But, you know, it's the Spirit. No, no, no. It's Jesus, and the Spirit is bearing witness to him. The Spirit is pointing people. What does the Spirit do basically in the life of an unbeliever? Points them to Jesus. Draws them to Christ. That they get saved. Once they're saved, what does he do in the life of a believer? Keeps drawing them closer to Jesus. That they would fall in love with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about speaking in tongues and slaying in the Spirit and swinging from chandeliers. That is not what the Holy Spirit's ministry is all about. Jesus said right here in John 16, verse 15, let me read to you out of the Amplified Bible, everything that the Father has is mine. That is what I meant when I said 
that he, the Spirit, will take the things that are mine and will reveal or declare, disclose, transmit it to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit will receive from the Father the great truths concerning Jesus. And these are the things he is going to reveal to the believer, to the church, right? Again, the Holy Spirit works to glorify Jesus. Verse 14, he never draws attention to himself. Once again, the Spirit's ministry is all about Jesus Christ, all about Jesus. As one author put it, by this we can test all teaching and preaching. If, if it has the effect of magnifying the Savior, then it is of the Holy Spirit, end quote. Jesus said in John 15, verse 26, he shall testify of me. And then in chapter 16, verse 14, he shall glorify me. Guys, the whole goal of our ministries as believers is that when people look at us, they see Jesus. I love that um, scripture in John 12 when um, a group of men came. And they, they came upon Philip, one of the apostles. Uh, it says in chapter 12, verse 21, Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. And that's something that should resonate with all of us. When people come to church, I don't want them to see Phil Ballmeyer. God forbid I wanted to see Jesus. Now, I have to admit, I'm not Jesus. I don't act like Jesus a lot of times the way he acted. I like to think I'm growing. Aren't you like to think you're growing too? Um, on this subject, though, J. Vernon McGee said, and I quote, On the back of the pulpit of the Church of the Open Door in downtown Los Angeles is placed the well-known scriptural injunction, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This familiar scripture is found in many pulpits today as a constant and urgent reminder to the preacher and to the prime to the preacher of the primary purpose of the pulpit. One church I heard well, when the preacher stood at the pulpit on the back wall there was a sign that said, "Sir, we wish to see Jesus." As a reminder to whoever was teaching from that pulpit, it's not about you. We want to see Jesus. McGee goes on. There is an added motto which might be placed helpfully alongside that scriptural injunction, we wish to see Jesus. It is not scriptural, but is very familiar to our contemporary society. The motto is, this is your life. Now, McGee been with the Lord for many years. But there was a TV show that came out back in October 1st of 1952 called this is your life. It ran for nine years. I remember. I'm old enough to remember that program. All right? And, um, and, and they would bring out people from a person's life that had like a, a, a great effect, a school teacher, a mentor, you know, and they would show the person that, you know, they really, and then, of course, people they've impacted to show them, look, it's like, a, like I don't know, the Jimmy um, Stewart, you know, uh, it's a wonderful life. You know, he thought he was a failure, but, you know, there are uh, people we've impacted we don't even realize. That, that the show was kind of trying to get to that. But, but McGee says, our, our lives are living pulpits. 
And with them we preach to this world every day. What is your life saying to this world about Jesus? All right. One author, I thought this was, was good, and I wanted to read it to you. One author summed up the ministry of the Holy Spirit towards the believer in Christ this way. Let me read this to you. He said, and I quote, It is Christ's glory revealed in the pages of Scripture that the Holy Spirit uses to mold believers into the image of Jesus Christ. And he quotes 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from, uh, just as from the Spirit of the Lord. Okay? So it's a, it's a day-by-day thing. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. He said, If it is the Spirit's purpose to glorify Christ in Revelation, how can it be any less, how can it be any less our purpose to glorify Christ in proclamation? It is the witness of the Holy Spirit that ultimately testifies to the truthfulness of Scripture. Through the coherent unity, scientific accuracy, historical verifiability, and fulfilled prophecy of the Bible, all mark it as unique and divinely inspired of God. In the end, only the Holy Spirit can convince lost sinners of its divine inspiration. That's true. The Spirit, therefore, testifies to the truthfulness of Scripture in the hearts of men and women. Just as in regeneration, which is salvation, the Spirit must work in people's lives for them to change their views of both the Bible, the written Word of God, and and the Savior, the incarnate Word of God, that sovereign work in the heart and mind of uh, and mind convinced men and women that the Bible is from God and all its words are reliable and that its message about Jesus Christ is indeed the good news of salvation. He ends with this. The true believer loves the word of God and believes and believes it because of the work of the Spirit in their heart. That work evidences, confirms and validates that the Bible is truly a divine gift from God, the God of glory who dwells outside of time and speaks to us through prophecy, telling us the end from the beginning and confirming that the Holy Scriptures are indeed the divinely inspired Word of God to mankind, end quote. Folks, the main ministry, as we bring this to a close, the main ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believer, as I just said it, is to draw us closer and closer to Jesus Christ every day, that we may become more and more like him. And this is accomplished, and I'm sure you already know this, this is accomplished primarily through the reading and studying of the Word of God. You show me a Christian that's not reading the Word, is not coming to Bible studies, is not studying the Word, I'll show you a carnal Christian. There's no way you can be all that God wants you to be. No way you can grow in the Spirit, into maturity, and so on, if you're not in the Word. If you're not in the Word. So this is, this is the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. He is the, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Bible, is, is he's the author. But it's about Jesus, who is the Word, right? And the more we stay in the Word and study it and feed on it, the closer we get to Christ is the idea, right? It's all accomplished primarily through us studying, read, reading and studying the Word of God. Remember what Paul said. Uh, to Timothy, a young pastor, we've quoted it several times in the course of the series. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man, woman of God, may be complete, 
thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's no way we can be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped to serve God without being in the Word of God. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, all the Bible is inspired by God? Yes, all of it. Even the boring genealogies that I skip over in my morning devotions, those are inspired too? Yes, absolutely. Oh, I don't believe that. All right. If you doubt that, let me end with this. Turn to Genesis chapter 5. I get it. I understand. Genealogies are boring. Why do I have to know all these names? It's just boring stuff. Let me show you something. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. All Scripture. It doesn't say all Scripture minus the genealogies. Genesis chapter 5, one of the first genealogies in the Bible, maybe the first. Verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Guys, Adam literally means man. Verse 3, and begot a son, Adam did, in his own likeness, after, uh, after his image, and called his name Seth. Seth literally means appointed. Verse 6, Seth, Seth lived a uh, 105 years and begot Enos. Enos means subject to death. Verse 9, Enos lived 99 years and begot Kainan. Kainan Kina literally means sorrowful. Verse 12, and Kainan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalil. Say that five times fast. <laughs> Mahalalil literally means from the presence of God. Verse 15, and Mahalalil lived 60 and five years and begat Jared. Jared literally means one who sells jewelry. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no. Gotcha. Jared literally means one comes down. And sells jewelry. No, just one comes down. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. Enoch literally means dedicated. Uh, that was verses 18 to 20. Verse 21, and Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begot Methuselah. Methuselah literally means dying he shall send. Why such a name? Because in the year Methuselah died, God sent the flood. And you can go back and listen to the study. We talked about that, okay? Verse 25, Methuselah lived 187 years and begat Lamech. Lamech means to the poor and lowly. Verse 28, and Lamech lived, Lamech lived 182 years and begot a son and called his name Noah. Noah means rest and comfort. Let's take the meaning of each of these names in this genealogy and put them together in one sentence to see what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, right? You ready? Man appointed to death, sorrowful. From the presence of God, one comes down, dedicated. Dying, he shall send to the poor and lowly rest and comfort. 
That's the gospel in one of those boring genealogies. Such is the word of God. Every word, every part is inspired by God. Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Dear brothers and sisters in Jesus, we are done. Let me just say this. Jesus is the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us who are children of God. It's, it's all about the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts to fall in love with Jesus by falling in love with his word. To cherish, listen, every word, passage, picture, and prophecy, they are all there for a reason, and that reason is to lift up and exalt Jesus, our Savior and our King. When you read your Bibles, remember what Jesus said. He will not testify of himself. He will testify of me. The Bible testifies to Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And may we read the scriptures with that in mind and be drawn to our Savior, fall in love with Jesus, learn to exalt him through our lives, and to represent him faithfully to this fallen world. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Wow. <laughs> your word is incredible. I, I believe we're just scratching the surface when we get into your presence, you're going to show us how deep, profound, miraculous your word really is. But Lord, we just thank you for blessing these studies um, on the Holy Spirit and pray that you will continue to bless our studies in the book, Gospel of John, going forward. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.